we read from Psalm 31 to begin our service, particularly that 15th verse where the psalmist declares his times are in the hand of the Lord. I want to read you just a portion of Matthew Henry's New Year's resolution. I posted this on, uh, on my Facebook page, which I don't do a whole lot of that, but um, put it on there the last two years because as I read through it, it's a real help to me to resolve to do these very things. And I'm only going to read a portion of it, so go and find the entire part of it and make it a prayer for yourself in this coming new year. But here's what he says concerning his times being in the hand of God. Matthew Henry says, Firmly believing that my times are in God's hand, I here submit myself and all of my affairs for the ensuing year to the wise and gracious disposal of God's divine providence. Whether he appoints for me health or sickness, peace or trouble, comforts or crosses, life or death, in all may his holy will be done. Oh, that the grace of God may be sufficient for me to keep me always in a humble sense of my own unworthiness, weakness, folly, and infirmity, together with a humble dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ for both righteousness and strength. These are the kinds of things that we as the people of God should have a heart yearning to emulate. To live all of life submitted completely, wholly, entirely into the will and purpose of God. And as we move forward into a new year, I trust and hope that we will live it in such a way that at year's end, we have no regrets. I realize that's a tall order. Even as you reflect on this past year, there are probably some regrets in your life and in your heart that things that you left undone, words that you left unspoken, witness that you left hanging, opportunities squandered, all of those kinds of things come to our minds. But moving forward, Lord helping us, we'll take full advantage of every opportunity that he gives us. Each new day that he renews his mercies to us is a day to be lived in his service and in his fear. I want you to open your Bible with me this morning to the 12th chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. Romans chapter 12. I want to read this entire chapter. It's short, just 21 verses most of the verses themselves being rather short. And as I read, I want you to note the difference in Paul's language. You'll oftentimes hear preachers refer to indicative and imperative statements. This is the shift in the 12th chapter of Romans where Paul really begins to make application of all the doctrine that he has written in the first 11 chapters. And so when we read in verse 1, that familiar verse, I would venture to say that most have a portion, if not the entirety of these first two verses of Romans 12 committed to memory, or you're at least endeavoring to do so. 
These are familiar verses. Paul says, I beseech you, or I beg you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable or rational service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Patient in tribulation. Continuing steadfastly in prayer. Distributing to the needs of the saints. Given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to this portion of your word asking, Lord, that you, by your spirit, would make application of it to us. Lord, help us to walk in obedience. Help us to walk in the true light. And even as we have read, Lord, help us not to be overcome by evil and all of that which stands in opposition to you, your truth and goodness but by the Spirit of God living within us, armed with the sword of the Spirit, help us to overcome evil with good. We pray and ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I want to call your attention specifically to verses 9 through 13. And I want you to think with me about these verses as being the perfect description of your and my aspiration for a new year. How would you live in this coming year? 
Well, I think most of us would say we desire to live in a way that is honoring and pleasing to the Lord. And then aren't you thankful that we're not left to try and discern or figure out how that life should be lived? The Lord gives us instruction, and this is the difference I tried to mention earlier between indicative and imperative. When you read things like Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, where Paul says, As the elect of God, holy and beloved, those are indicative truths. And we all love to hear truths that define who we are or indicate who we are in Christ. How does God view me now as being made righteous in His Son? But then that same verse, Colossians 3.12, and I pull this out because you see both. You see the indicative truth of who we are in Christ, but then also the imperative of put on. And then there's a whole list of things that the new man, having been renewed in Christ, made new in Christ, that he is to put on. Imperatives are, are commands. What we find in verses 9 through 13 are commands given not on my authority nor our collective authority but commands given by the authority of Christ these are expectations of Christ for his people and I like what Sinclair Ferguson says about these verses he says God's people are called to look like God's gospel the people of God are called to look like the gospel of God. And you may say, how, how is that so? What we read of here in verses 9 through 13, much of it is a detail of how God has dealt with us. And so the pattern is, deal with others around you, whether they are your brothers and sisters in the Lord or not, but especially those who are in the faith. Deal with them as you have been dealt with. How much strife, how much error, how much grief, how much would we spare the name of Christ if we would only deal with one another the way that we have been dealt with by him? And that's what these verses call us to do. I'm starting in verse 9 because these are what are called the general imperatives. These are applicable to every Christian at every time. The first eight verses, especially verses 3 through 7, 3 through 8, deal with specific giftings within the body of Christ. Each one has been dealt with a measure of faith by God. And then we read, if this is your gift, use it in this way. This is not an exhaustive list of the giftings of the Spirit of God, but certainly some of the more notable that are carried out within the body of Christ. And then when we get down to verse 9, the general application made to every Christian. And so I want you to, to read and hear and listen and even silently pray even now that the Lord would take these things and drive them deep into your heart. Because most likely there are things here that we need to repent of. There are things here that if we give an honest look and an honest examination of ourselves before the Lord, we are going to find that we are lacking, or perhaps we're going to find that we are greatly lacking. Before I go any further, I want you to notice 
where this begins in verse 1 of the 12th chapter. These expectations and commands are based upon a life that has been redeemed of God. Paul is beseeching the church in Rome based upon the mercies of God that has been made known to them that they present their bodies a living sacrifice. Verses 9 through 13 are just an extension of what it means to present your body as a living sacrifice. These are things that must be done in the power of the Spirit. If you attempt to carry out the imperative commands in verses 9 through 13 in fleshly carnal strength, you will be frustrated at every turn and fail accordingly. These are things that cannot be done on your own. God must be helping us. The Spirit of God must make these things alive within us or we simply cannot do them. And so I want you to look with me. I told you last week, good Baptist preachers preach with three points. I'm totally going to abandon that today. Surprisingly, I have eight. And we're going to move through them quickly. And they come right out of these verses 9 through 13. We could deal at length with just the first five words of verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. And I'm going to state this positively for the first point. Our love is to be genuine. Our love is to be real. It's to be sincere. The King James says, without dissimulation. Other translations say our love is to be unfeigned. There should be nothing pretentious. There should be nothing that is not real and genuine with the love that we have one to another. That is the context of these verses. Please also note that. Verse 4 says, we have many members in one body. All the members do not have the same function. So being many, we are one body in Christ. These are realities and attitudes, characteristics of brothers and sisters in the Lord living in covenant, living in community with one another, striving to be all that we should and can be to one another, God helping us. And it's no wonder that Paul begins this general Application to all Christians at all times by saying, let love be without hypocrisy. Is there any other label that is more often given to an individual Christian or even to a church? Is there any label perhaps given more so by those outside than labeling the church as being hypocritical? Not living out the things that we confess and say. Not putting in practice the things that we believe. Nothing is so repugnant to the Lord and those around us as hypocrisy. To merely just play the part, to look like you are the redeemed of God rather than actually living like you are the redeemed of God. And when you think about how we are to put this in practice. The rest of this paragraph really expounds upon how we are to love without hypocrisy, but 
Let's just say it this way. We are to love as we have been loved. The word here is the familiar word agape. And I want you to to rehearse with me just a moment the way that God has loved you. God has especially set his affection on you because of nothing good in you. You did not, nor did I, catch the loving eye of God and then become an object of his love. This is the way that you and I are called to love those around us. If they have nothing to offer back, even as we had nothing to offer back to him, Yet his affection was set on us, so we set our affection on those who have no possibility of returning any good that we have bestowed upon them. Simply because we are striving to be obedient to the scriptures and let our love be without hypocrisy. How could we talk about this without at least referencing the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians? And let me just read for you there again how the scriptures detail the type of love that Paul is writing about in Romans 12. This type of love is, an, is, an, is a love of choice. This is something that you and I determine to do. This is not the type of love that is so often spoken of in our culture that overcomes us and we can do nothing else. This is the love of choice, choosing to do these very things. 1 Corinthians 13, let me read these for us again. First, in the, in the first verse of thir- chapter 13, we have the statement that we do well to heed. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clinging cymbal. It doesn't matter what you know. It doesn't matter what you do if you're not doing it with sincere, genuine love for Christ and your neighbor and your brother and sister. The scripture pronounces over us that we are just noisy. You skip down to the fourth verse. Love suffers long. And is kind. Love does not envy. It does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. Love is not provoked. Love thinks no evil. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Let love be without hypocrisy. That's the first point. The second, our responses to good and evil are to be distinct. Notice what Paul says in verse 9. Abhor what is evil, cling to to what is good. One person has said our response to these two things should be violently partisan. We've witnessed violent 
partisan all day, every day, right? In the political sphere, we need not wonder where certain groups of people stand on certain issues. The line of demarcation could not be more clear. This is the way that we are called as believers by the mercies of God, presenting our bodies as living sacrifices to Him. These, this distinction between good and evil should be just as clear in our lives. Let me point out two words. Abhor, first of all, means to be filled with horror. And an honest question for us living in a world of evil is, are we filled with horror at the evil around us? Are we abhorring it? I realize we're immersed in it. We can't get away from it. But our attitude towards it should be distinct and clear. To see it for what it is and be abhorred by it. To see it for the monstrous evil that it is in the sight of God. And to turn away. But there is a counter action as well. Because you'll notice as you read the scriptures. Rarely does the scripture take something away from us. When it doesn't give something else back in its place. That's, we follow the pattern of Paul in Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Put off and put on. Put off the old man, put on the new man. That same pattern, though those words aren't used, is certainly implied here. When the evil is to be seen for what it is and to fill us with horror so that we give it no countenance, certainly that we give our hands, we do not give our hands, our efforts, and our energy to it. The opposite of that, then, is to cling to what is good. Now, the word abhor is only used here in the New Testament, but the word cling, its opposite, is used throughout the New Testament and most often translated as cleave. Cleave unto what is good. This is the word that is used for a cleaving of husband to wife and wife to husband, to be joined one to another. When we find what is good and that description and definition comes out of the scriptures, then you and I must cleave, hold on to it, hold fast and not let it go. God give us increasing wisdom, increasing discernment, increasing clarity of vision and spiritual discernment to see evil for what it is and to see what is truly and really good. Now, notably... Our culture has these things completely opposite and reversed. And we could read it in direct opposition if we were wanting to get a good definition of the culture in which we live. They are cleaving to what is evil and abhorring good. But as the redeemed of God, the new humanity, so to speak, we cannot blur these lines. Our response to them must be what Scripture expects of us. Cling to what is good. The Lord is good. He is faithful. He is full of mercy, grace, and truth. 
Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. It's not as if the Lord hasn't given us enough good things to cling to because He has. The issue is how carnal and worldly have our affections become. Our appetites. A faithful examination of your life and my own may most likely reveal areas where we have let the lines blur. And where things are no longer black and white, but gray. And I realize, keep it in context, there are certain times when you and I, in, in wisdom before God, can compromise on certain things. I realize that word is, is one that probably perks up your attention. We don't all see things the same way. But evil in the scripture is clearly shown to be what it is. Evil hates light, hates truth, hates exposure, abhor it, and cling to the good things. If you move down into verse 10, the third point here is, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. We've already dealt with the agape word, let love be without hypocrisy. Now Paul brings in the second word that is most often translated as love in the New Testament, and that is brotherly love or the Philadelphia type of love, man to man. That's the translation here, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. What Paul is saying here, if we understand it rightly, I suppose, is fairly convicting. What Paul is saying that those who are members of the body of Christ, hearkening back to verse 4, are called to love one another like family. The two greatest examples that we could give of being kindly affectionate First of all, the husband-wife relationship and then the parent-child relationship. And you know quite honestly in, from ex- life experience that you deal with your own family different than you do with those who are outside of your family. You're more patient. You're more persevering. You can tolerate more. And you'll do all of those things without letting your love grow cold towards them. You'll hear your own parents say things to you that if someone else said to you, you would be greatly and highly offended. I think experience just bears it out that we take and give more in our own families without letting love be lost. But we need to ratchet that up and see the expectation, not just of Paul, but the expectation of the Spirit of God to those that he has redeemed within the body of Christ. We are to love one another like we are flesh and blood family. 
be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. How do you suppose that a group of people seeking to implement these by the help of the Spirit, how do you suppose we would look in the eyes of the world? Completely and totally different than every other group of people, right? That's the way it should be. What a stain on the grace of God. What a stain upon the cause of Christ. What shame do we bring to our Lord when we do not love one another like family? When we let a word said in passing cut us to the quick and then we dwell on it so long that a root of bitterness springs up and you fast forward weeks, months, or a year down the road, you can't even really remember what has gotten you to the point where you are. You're just at that point. Because a small offense was not overlooked or forgiven. That's why this is such an important part of body life. Be kindly affectionate to one another with Brotherly love, and let's move on for the sake of time. In honor, giving preference to one another. To say this another way, we are to be at all times and in all ways clothed in humility. Philippians 2, 3 through 4. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not Look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Giving preference to one another. Again, how much petty wrong could be overlooked if we are giving preference to one another? If we are looking out for one another's interests and not our own. And then in verse 11, we have the first Verses 11 and 12 give us groupings of three things, and I think all of these things go together to make one point. So we'll take verse 11 first. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. So if you read that and then hit reverse, we are to serve the Lord with a fervent spirit, and not lagging in diligence. I want to give you an alternate rendering for the word lagging here in verse 11, and it's the word slothful. Slothful. Not slothful in diligence. Notice both of these first two are pointing to the way that we serve the Lord. And A close examination of our lives very often is going to reveal some type of lag in diligence or slothful attendance upon the things of God. How about fervency in spirit? Is this the way that we always serve the Lord? The word fervent here means to bring to a boil or even to boil over. As we are serving, and the word serving there can 
can have as its root meaning the word worship. As we are serving slash worshiping the Lord, do we always do so with a fervent spirit that is brought to a boil by the truth of God as we have meditated upon it, studied it, considered it? You see, these things are are set directly opposite. There is a slothful attitude or a fervent spirit towards our service to the Lord. The next grouping of three in verse 12, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. Notice the first, rejoicing in hope. You realize that as Christians, those who are believing in Christ and to the saving of the soul, we have a hope like no other. There is nothing that even begins to compare with the hope that we have in Christ. To what degree are you rejoicing in that hope even here this morning? With everything in the world that is going wrong, here we sit as those who have reason to rejoice. But notice, patient in tribulation. Tribulation is something that comes in some form or another to every Christian. We're told clearly in this world we're going to have trouble of some kind. There are a couple of different reactions that we can have to this tribulation or trouble. But the one that we are here instructed to have is to be patient in it. To be patient continuing steadfastly in prayer. Let me ask you, even as I ask myself, what is your prayer life like? Most of us are going to say it's so far from where I want it to be and where it should be. And it seems like Paul has placed this last in this, in this grouping here of three things as a barometer, so to speak. If we are not continuing steadfastly in prayer, then it almost goes without saying that we are not rejoicing in hope and we are not patient in tribulation. Seems like all of these things come together or not at all. And isn't it true that it's through continuing steadfastly in prayer that the Lord enables you and I to rejoice in hope and to persevere in tribulation? And getting down to the last of these verses, in verse 13. We are to distribute to the needs of the saints. I believe the King James word here is to communicate to the needs of the saints. Which implies a watchfulness. You and I cannot distribute to the needs of our brothers and sisters if we have not recognized the need. 
And quite honestly, this is where we so often fall short. We like to rush in, sing a few songs, hear some scripture read, and rush out. How can we recognize the needs one another have in such a a flippant, relational type of way? You know the needs that your family have because you spend time with them. You know what your children need. You know what your parents need. You know what even your cousin needs or your neighbor needs because of time spent and a recognition of these things. If we are to distribute to the needs of the saints, we must know that a need exists. And then a a practice of stewardship springs into action, right? We're given everything by the Lord. None of us are self-made in anything. The Lord has given us a stewardship all different, and yet we are to use those things He has given us to minister to one another. And then the last simply says given to hospitality. The word hospitality in a strict sense means to love strangers. But I want to call your attention to the first part, the first word here, given or pursuing. Pursuing hospitality. I think this encapsulates both the giving and receiving of hospitality. And again, quite frankly, we very often fall short in this area. It's notable that one of the qualifications for both elders and deacons in the scriptures is that they be hospitable men. That they willingly open not just their home, but their life and make themselves and all that they are available to those around them. Now, Notably, in New Testament times, when Paul wrote this, there were Christians who were traveling and fleeing persecution. I mean, who was the emperor? Nero, right? And so Christians were on the move in fear for their lives. And Paul says, be given to hospitality. Love the ones that the Lord brings into your path and love them well. Treat them like Family, Be kindly affectionate to them. Treat them like you would want your children treated if they were not at home. Treat them and give them the reception that you would have your own parents receive if they were far from home. We see how these things all begin to play together. We are only hospitable to those to whom we are kindly affectionate and practicing brotherly love. Now, notice all of these things are coming to us in the imperative form as commands. These are not holy recommendations. That's why I love the book written by Alexander Strout called The Hospitality Commands. And you can't get away from them in Scripture. Christians are called to be hospitable to one another. And it's as if we look at all of these things and what we see in the world around us is their complete opposite. And I'm going to run through that list. 
But let me just say one more thing about this word given or pursuing in verse 13. This doesn't mean be hospitable and then grudgingly so. We have an innate ability to do the right thing very often, but with the wrong attitude. To do the right thing and then grumble in the doing of that right thing. And it should call to mind Jesus' words, these people draw near me with their mouths, but their hearts are far removed. So if you take these and look at them in their direct opposite, I'm not going to cover all of these, but just in one sentence, the world and unbelievers around us, their love is hypocritical. They'll love you while they look at you. But that's about as far as it goes. The world around us clings to evil and abhors what is good, knows nothing of the kind affection and brotherly love that is the expectation of the body of Christ. The unbelieving world around us is full of pride and arrogance, obviously not serving the Lord. The world around us has no hope. They are impatient in trials, prayerless and inhospitable. By the grace of God made known to us in Jesus Christ, let us be different. Let us be different. All of these are matters of obedience. We will either choose to love genuinely or we will not. We will choose to have or what is evil and cling to what is good or we will not. We will choose to be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love or we will not. We will choose in honor to give preference to one another or we will not. We will choose to not lag in diligence, to be fervent in spirit in our serving the Lord or we will not. We will choose to rejoice in hope, to be patient in tribulation, to continue steadfastly in prayer or we will not. We will choose to distribute to the needs of the saints and choose to be given to hospitality, or we will not. So often it all boils down to obedience, doesn't it? Will we or won't we? Will we love as we have been loved? Will we relate to one another the way we have been related to? All of these matters of obedience, and, and here... Here's where I'm done. Almost all, always when you begin to talk about obedience, someone is going to come to you and say you're being legalistic. Almost always. And let's just set the record straight. Obedience for a Christian is not legalism. Obedience is a symptom of your salvation. Or it's a consequence of your salvation. It's something you do because the Spirit of God is within you, spurring you on to do it. Legalism, strictly defined, is keeping of laws and commands in effort to be made right with God. 
obedience or what you oftentimes hear referred to as evangelical or gospel obedience is the keeping of laws and commands as a result of being the redeemed of God. You see the vast difference? Huge, right? Legalism, you're trying to make yourself right with God by keeping and obeying. Gospel obedience, on the other hand, we're obeying because of the great salvation that we have received. So never shy away from calling yourself and others to be obedient to the scriptures. I think within each believer, the Spirit of God is testifying to you that you are indeed a son or a daughter of God. So let me pray and then we're going to give our attention to the Lord's table. Father, we come this morning and Lord, we we want to understand these verses rightly. We want to be obedient to them out of love for you, love to one another. Lord, help us to implement them. Lord, give us grace. Help us to repent where needed. Help us to recognize our our often failures. We know that there is grace and help in Christ. We know that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. So Lord, help us to strive in this coming new year after more obedience to you, more love to you, more love for one another, more real relationship that more closely characterizes the love which you have made known to us. We ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.